learning listeners, welcome back to Pedagogy Non Grata, where we bridge the gap between the scientific literature and teaching practices in the classroom. I'm your host, Robert, and I'm joined here by your other host, Joseph. Hey, it's good to be back on the podcast with you. You know, that might be one of your best intros yet ever. You sounded so formal and you have so much gravitas to your voice. I kind of felt like it was Walter Cronkite introducing like the evening news, you know? Okay, now I'm concerned because you're being really nice. Well, I I actually, I have to address that actually. So I got, I got word from our totally real non-made up lawyers and they, they told me that, you know, there was some concerns about the liability of being so mean to my, my co-host Robert. And I, I, I told the lawyers, like, who, by the way, are totally not made up. I told them that uh, we're just joking around. That they, it's, it's all for show. Like, you're one of my best friends in real life. And the lawyers' minds were blown. So um, I, I, do, I do have to make a formal on-air apology, though, because of this. Um, Robert, I just want to officially say I'm not firing you. And I do not have that authority to do so. And that, Robert, I am not actively at this moment looking for a co-host however if anybody is interested in the position please do attach your resumes when you message me you know what like i appreciate that but i I really wish you had told me that sooner because um are you plotting a hostile takeover of the company robert well um it wasn't too much of a task i think everyone collectively uh, not that we had meetings without you, but we had a meeting without you, and um, I don't know, it, it, it seemed like it was kind of unanimous, and That's probably well overdue. That, uh, That's really interesting, because one of the silent partners of this, this company is my wife. So you're telling me that my wife has turned on me and is supporting a takeover of the company? Well, well I... You've characterized it that way. I would say maybe, um, maybe we're just finding a new role mm. for you. I don't, I don't, I don't know. But you know what? I'm feeling, I'm feeling very charitable today. Seeing how you're turning over a new leaf, you seem to have quite a few leaves to turn over. But um, <laughs> you know what? How about we just leave it at the status quo and let's 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 try to be a little nicer to each other. Okay. Well, yeah. speaking speaking of my wife, actually, my wife is the the editor for all of the content. So, um, I think Robert and my wife have this challenge in that I voraciously want to charge forward on every endeavor we want to do, create content at like a mile per minute, and they're they're stuck with trying to like you know quality control that content and to you know tim uh, lower my my expectations and ambitions a little because nobody else can turn out stuff as fast as I can. Um, so I've, I've finished the book for, for PNG and my, my wife is editing it. So she's, her editing process will be longer than, you know, my, um, then, then I would have expected, but that's because my wife is a really high quality editor. And, um, writing isn't actually something that comes naturally to me, to be honest. It's something I do a lot of, I've now written two books, although they are completely unrelated, and I will not talk about the first book on this podcast because it's it's, <laughs> it's fiction. It has nothing to do with this brand. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 something that's not something that comes naturally to me. So I'm really grateful that I have um, my wife to edit my content. But uh, I think 
if anyone out there is waiting for the book um, excitedly, uh, they're probably going to have to wait um, at least a month because I am going to be sending out to publishers too um, before I release it to you guys. But it is written. So I hope to share it with you guys before before Christmas. I know I originally said I'd like to share it in September. Obviously, that's coming past, and that was way too ambitious of me. So uh, that, that caveat out of the way. But uh, for the record, it, just in case anyone's truly worried that I'm bullying Robert, I am actually just kidding. Robert's, uh, he's an okay guy. No, no, you're, you're an okay guy too. And, and we, I guess, I guess we thought, I guess it's the, it's the fifth season, so it's kind of weird to make this a little bit of a change now. Um, but I think we were completely under the impression that it was, it was blatantly obvious that we were joking, but you know what? Maybe that's just us being in our own little bubble here and, I think I think something yeah. to think about is a large part of our audience is speaking English as a second language. Um, so if you're not in a hundred percent fluent in English um, and the nuances of English, maybe some of that, like the sarcasm and satire, might be lost. I don't know. Right. And then I think maybe perhaps it's just some of the like incredibly offensive things you say to me. It's just it, after a while, you know. Oh, would you stop crying about it? I, hey, I'm not crying. Like I, I went five seasons with. For for the record, guys, I can see Robert's face right now. We're on Skype, and I can see the tears rolling down his face. Right, right, okay. So we're actually not on Skype. So if he's if he's watching someone crying right now, then I'm sorry. Wait, who am I watching cry? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, let's yeah, not I, be goofy. Let's 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 end this goofiness. Let's. I think people right. don't come to us for comedy. I think they come to us for educational information. I could be wrong. I don't know. I, I, I think I think they have a better chance with the comedy than, than the education. But what do you want to say about, about the book? Uh, I am happy to hear that I might have a little bit more time to work on my forward that I'm writing for the book because I'm still in the middle of doing that. Oh, really? Have you finished reading it? Yes, I finished reading it. And... Um, there's been some massive rewrites, to be honest, since the, the copy I last gave you, admittedly. but Yeah, uh, yeah, I figure, but I, I think a lot of it is, is based on all of the work that we've been we've been doing this whole time and all the articles that have been posted. So, um, yeah, I think I'm prepared to write the forward. I'm just really trying to give it that that vibe, that that gravitas that I think um, that it deserves. You know, you know, you did a really, really good job with all of this, and. And I just want to, you know, do that little piece. Um, and I'm glad to hear that I have a, a lot more time. And as for you just, you know, bulldozing ahead and opening up new fronts and a lot more things that we have to put quality control, that is completely true. I'm glad you recognize that. I know at some point I started to feel, and I'm sure uh, your wife has felt at the same time a little bit like a zookeeper. It's like <laughs> we're kind of like falling behind you, and wherever you decide to kind of make a mess, you have to like, you know. But you know, it's all it's all good. I think you've you've pushed us farther than we, and farther and faster than we would have gone on our own. And you know, that's a good thing. I think that's what makes us a good team. Yeah. Okay. Well. um, Let's let's get started on the the podcast episode today. So we're we just finished our series on math interventions ranked according to metasize. So now we're gonna do language interventions according to metasize. By the way, I don't think we'll do science. 
Robert would probably love it if we did science, but science is not, um, despite the fact that this is largely a science podcast, it's not something I'm super passionate about the teaching of. Um, so maybe if Robert wants to collect the data for that, we could, but uh, it's also not something I've really taught other than as an auxiliary subject. So it's not something I really feel qualified to comment on. We also won't do say history and geography. Um, but I think uh, reading and math in many ways are the most important subjects in terms of being the, the core basics. So I think it's our largely our focus on this podcast. Um, anyway, so we're ranking um, studies by effect size. I will give a really brief explanation to our audience of how these effect sizes are, are calculated and a real brief um, disclaimer to this type of research, um, just in the sense that uh, most of our audience knows this information by now if you've been listening to this podcast by for a long time but if this is your first time listening to one of our episodes it's sort of foundational knowledge you need to understand and um i hope that nobody listens to say part three of this episode of this series without listening to part one because i'm not going to go over it every episode um so first off we're looking at effect sizes so effect sizes are um, a way of calculating the average impact of a result the primary way they do it, there's different calculations for this. Most of the studies that we looked at for this one were calculated using Hedges G. Um, but the primary way that these are, are calculated is they um, take the average mean difference um, of results, so the average increase of learning, and then they divide that by um, the standard deviation. So as to give you a, a fairly accurate understanding of what we can expect learning to go up by in the classroom. Um, so it's sort of a proxy to a percentage, but it's not a percentage. Um, generally speaking, we can, these effect sizes are, it's not an effective way of thinking. I've said this before, but it's not an effective way of thinking of these as like, oh, okay, it's 1.27. Therefore, um, that is the specific impact of this. I think of it more like this is the likelihood that this will have a big impact of increasing my learning. So it is based off the, the the difference, but it's not like you, you there's so much variable to this. You're never going to be able to say like, oh, I implemented this study. So therefore, or this tool that has this level of, you know, results. So therefore, I should expect the same specific level of results back in my classroom because there's too much that goes into it. There's too much variability. This is why we use meta-analysis in the first place, because, um, you know, you might get one study with an effect size of 0.4 and a mean difference of 60 and one um, study with an effect size of 0.2 and a mean difference of 30%. I mean, this uh, it's not really an effective way of, of looking at it to say like, oh, the mean uh, effect size is 1.27. Therefore, I should expect, you know, um, an, an average increase in my classroom of 127%. Um, but that being said, we sort of look at these in stratospheres, and we're going to break this um, series down to stratospheres like we did with math. So basically, anything um, 0.4 to 0.6 is kind of the average result. John Hattie has done the largest um, meta-analysis of this type of research that I'm aware of, and he, he says that the average study has a 0.4 um, result. So we, we generally say, speaking, say, see like 0.4 as the bare minimum, anything below 0.4 and the, the opportunity cost, generally speaking, is higher than the benefit of implementing it, um, generally speaking, very generally speaking, and anything higher than a 
um, we're starting to say, well, okay, there's, there's some significant statistical evidence that this is a effective strategy. So again, then we get sort of like that 0.7 um, to 0.9 range. I would say that then we're, we're talking about something that is a high yield strategy. And I would say anything that's 1.0 or higher is an extremely high yield strategy. Lastly, I would say anything, you know, that's below, you know, 0.2, we're looking at something that, you know, is possibly not even effective. Um, and there are, this is all very generalizations. There, you know, in our last series on this, there were absolutely um, strategic factors with very low effect sizes that we both advocate for. Um, uh, but this is not, this series is not going to be us presenting our favorite reading interventions according to our personal experience. This series is going to be us presenting reading interventions ranked according to how they perform in statistical analysis. Robert, do you want to comment on that? Uh, no, I think I think you covered most of it. That's the yeah. I think that's all the legal jargon that we need to go through, so that um, everything else we're going to say is more beneficial. And um, yeah, so I yeah. think you covered it. Okay, I, you know, I'm always worried about cause this is such a complicated topic. Actually, I'm always worried about the 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 point of which I'm being oversimplifying things for the audience and sort of misguiding them in the sense that I'm oversimplifying it. Or, right. but I'm also always worried about getting too technical and boring the pants off of our audience. So, right. you know what? Uh, I'll say this. Um, I think you've been doing a good job with that. Um, you kind of took the lead on that part of it, and I think, yeah, I think it's you're striking a good balance. And at the same time, we kind of addressed this in our last episode that for our listeners to get through some of the content that's over an hour of podcast. And sometimes we're talking about really heavy or complicated material, perhaps even dry to some. And for our, our listenership to be going up, I think that the kind of listeners we have are, you know, for lack of a better term, they're just nerds. So yeah, and maybe that's what we should be referring to our listeners as. Instead of listeners, maybe we should get a little more um, chummy and just, you know, our nerds. Because, yeah, I think they want to hear some of this and, and at the same time, they do want the clarity of of um, providing the analogy or the examples that we do sometimes. Yeah, you know what? Of the listeners that have bothered to add us on Facebook and give us some discussion, um, which I will admit, our audience is often quite quiet in that regard. Those those listeners are incredibly technical. I've had long debates about effect sizes with one of our listeners on on Facebook, um, but you know, it's hard to say if that's everyone. I will say. I don't, I don't, I no longer see the word nerd as, um, um, a negative. I think it's a positive in many ways. I, I refer to myself as a nerd and I, I will say this. I love data. What a weird thing to say. You know, teenage, teenage Joseph who was out there skateboarding and, um, spending a lot of his time partying up with friends probably would be quite humiliated by the idea of me calling myself a nerd and saying, I love data, but it's the truth. And we evolve as human beings. So. Come on, come on, come on, Joseph. It, it's 2020. It, it's okay to admit that you love data. I love data. All right. Well, let's get. Let's start off with our first um, thing on the list then. So our first factor is RTI, and RTI has an effect size of 1.44. Um, this has been a, a bit of a controversial one in the sense that um, there, if we look at it in a different way, um, so if we look at the number of studies that have a positive effect size versus a negative effect size, there is more of a negative than a positive for RTI. And yet, if we average out the actual results of all of those and divide it by their um, 
oh, standard deviation, um, the effect size is incredibly high, which suggests in the schools that have implemented successfully, the effect size is off the charts um, to get that type of result. And you and I have both used RTI before, and uh, RTI is an example of an action-based framework. And I would say, in my opinion, um, RTI has the potential to be one of the most high-yield strategies you could ever use as a teacher. And interestingly, RTI is almost always applied to reading, but I would say it's actually better for math than it is for reading. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. So, Robert, do you want to comment on the efficacy, or should we start breaking into what RTI is? Admittedly, yeah, sure. our um, entire audience I, should know what RTI is by this point. Yeah, what I, what I would say is that, again, RTI, I think, is it's one of those examples of something that has um, quite a learning curve when it comes to implementation and that perhaps a lot of the variation that we see in the studies comes from, you know, that incredible leap you have to make when you're, when you're implementing it, and especially because you tend to have to implement it. Uh, it's tend to be implemented across a school. Um, I think that's where, where you see that variation. And I, and I think it's one of those strategies that it's actually so effective that normally a strategy that is that um, difficult to implement would probably be one of the ones that ranks lower because it's just too confounded by its implementation. But I think it, it kind of breaks through it breaks through that because it actually is, as an action framework, it, it actually is that effective. And I think it would be largely more effective if it wasn't so almost purposely convoluted at times. Yeah. I, I think it's more branding. It's more of a, a way of making it more proprietary. And we've kind of talked about that in the past. But there, there are definitely things that could be simplified. And I think it would actually improve it, um, efficacy. Of course, if, if they did that, they wouldn't be able to have, you know, um, RTI instructors paid, you know, $100,000 a year to travel around the country and train teachers on how to do it. But, right. um, and that's not actually criticism of them. I think it's just a reality of capitalism. Um, right. Why don't, why don't we get you to explain what RTI is to the audience or any new listeners? Because our, our traditional audience, I will say, already knows what it is because we've talked about it so many times in the podcast. Um, but uh, we might have new listeners. And I will say that the person who explained to me for the first time what RTI was, was Robert. So why don't we, we continue that tradition and let you explain it? Yeah, I think, I think uh, it's funny when I explained it to you, I think it was pretty clear and crystal, at least the positive aspects of it, the, the positive aspects that I see was quite clear, clear and crystal. And then when, when, we, when we went through the process as a school, learning about it, it seemed really convoluted and, and hard to follow. So uh, I, I think some of our listeners might get a, a bit of a, a, misle- a misled when I simplify how it works, but you know what? I'm just going to do it anyway because that's the only way I can kind of deliver that. Yeah, we can't spend an hour on it. What I view is that the most important part is an attention to scaffolding the entire curriculum from where you want the students to get to. Often that means, you know, starting with the the highest grade level um, curriculum in that institution and then going backwards and asking yourself the question, what do I, what do my students need to know for them to perform 
this test or to have this knowledge base? What do they need to know before that? So then that's how you can scaffold down to grade seven and all the way down to the lowest curriculum grade that you have in that institution. And then from there, you that's overlaid with a constant formative assessment, a structured formative approach and a structured formative assessment. And then I feel like what the secret sauce becomes after that, because that's just really uh, an example of good programming. The secret sauce to that is then they tie um, teacher self-efficacy to it and collective self-efficacy so that you work in a group, whether it be teacher teams that are just across one grade or if the school is smaller, sometimes you work as a, as a huge uh, block of, of a few grades and you compile your data and then you begin to come up with common approaches, common assessment types, common strategies, um, and then you continue to come back and report regularly on that and then make tweaks. So I think really the most beneficial thing on the program entirely is that I think it, it actually just produces better teachers. It produces a teacher that's hyper-conscious um, of the role of assessment and how to make interventions in their classroom. You know, I, I actually disagree with you. Which is a rare, oh, yeah. it was a rare thing. I think the the most effective part about RTI, and this is one of part of the problem with RTI, is that it's so um, large and encompassing of a program that it requires a lot of learning. Um, but I, I think the the secret sauce, as you will say, is actually the formative assessment coupled with the um, the teaching specified to those assessment results. So in my mind, like response to intervention. So it, it like you're responding to the data and trying to change how you teach based off your results. So if I have a student who is not learning that month's learning goal and they break everything down into learning cycles and learning goals, if I have a student not learning that month's learning goals, um, then I do something um, to meet that student's needs. To me, that is the secret sauce of RTI, but I could be wrong. You know what? I, I think you might be wrong. I'm going to disagree with you a, bit, a, a little bit on this, and I'm not going to pull rank because oh. I did explain I did explain uh, the process to you. But what I would say, the reason I said that collective self-advocacy, the way it's done, the way it's performed in RTI, and that's actually the hardest part to really implement. I agree. And I, why I think the strategy tends to break down a lot in, in a school environment. Agreed. Is, is that what I find is that you, let's say you had a teacher that was super, super effective. They have a certain ways of doing things. They're very responsive to the data and they're making great strides. They can bring up student learning two years, uh, three years, perhaps. It really wouldn't matter how much they brought up student learning if that student is then going to matriculate the next year into an environment where the expectations are completely different, perhaps way lower and every, all the routines, everything the student has really associated with their ability to perform at such a high level is completely changed and pulled from what's under them. I feel like even sacrificing that great teacher for teachers that are more, you know, middle of the road in their effectiveness, if that student is then going to matriculate from from year to year, to a student, to a, to a teacher that uses the same language, 
the same processes, the same assessment tools, and as and as uh, intervening in in similar ways, that student is less likely to find gaps in reading or in math, and it's going to be it's going to be easier for that student to then become a self advocate for their own learning and be able to, you know, maybe after three or four years, if they get a teacher that is completely different expectations, lower standards, they would be able to survive that environment better. And I feel like if there's anything I really have regrets or like really keeps me up at night as a teacher, um, it's the idea that if I feel like I have to get my students to a certain level of competency and advocacy, that I know that I can feel comfortable that they can go on the next year, particularly if they're in grade eight, and they're going to be great no matter what kind of instruction they receive. Um, and I would say that's why I believe that's kind of the secret sauce because I, I don't think, I think if the self-efficacy is really, really working and it's systematized through all of the, 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 the grade levels, um, that that actually produces an environment for students to really catch up beyond more than more than that one year that they might have with a really exceptional teacher. Yeah, um, I still I still stand by my original point. I I don't, I, do. I don't think um, what you're saying is wrong in the sense that uh, what you're like the the insight you're providing isn't in, untrue. I just I still think it's the it's the responding to the data that's most important. And I, I say that because it's something that's consistent across action research frameworks. Um, um, and I also feel like it it's still a high-yield strategy, even if you do it without the collective self-efficacy. Um, but I don't think you can deny that collective self-efficacy is also a powerful tool. Although, I think collective self-efficacy has some limitations in that it's dependent on the level of... Um, collaboration in a school and i think it's also dependent on the level of skill of individual teachers in a school okay i think i think we're kind of like really talking about in the weeds like we're just kind of like yeah we've we've really gotten into the weeds in our gi it's a subject we're both passionate about admittedly um all right so let's move on to the next teaching factor then so the next teaching factor is just in teaching main idea and has an effect size of 1.27 now, this, this one surprised me, although I think you have to look at this data through a nuanced lens. And I, I say that because something I didn't realize uh, about reading meta-studies that makes them very complicated is they don't tend to anal analyze the same result. And what I mean by that is that some of these studies are looking at student comprehension, some of these studies are looking at actual reading, and some of these studies are looking at um, um, decoding, and some of these studies are looking at fluency, and it's... There's so many factors. So you almost have to think about what is this meant to teach? Because usually that's what they're they're examining. So for main idea, what they were they're looking at is comprehension. So we can say it's a high yield teaching main idea is a high yield strategy for increasing students' comprehension. Which again makes sense, although it's such a simple thing, and it's something that I think almost all teachers who are language teachers do, especially in the higher grades. Um, that I, I was surprised by it having such a high yield result. Although this comes back to something we said in our math series, that oftentimes it's the simplest ideas that are the most effective. Um, and, and just in case anyone's wondering what I mean by teaching main idea, so that's just asking students what is the main idea of a text and then helping them discuss and talk about that idea. 
Robert? So I, I would agree with everything. I don't, I don't really know if there's anything I can really add to that. Um, it's not a very controversial one. Well, I don't know. You're going you're gonna to find that I am a little more observant when it comes to language, teaching language, because where my expertise might be in math and science and you often defer to me, I, I would have to defer to you more often when it comes to language because I just have less experience yeah, I, I do have a lot of experience in teaching language. I wouldn't, I don't feel like an expert in teaching language, um, to be honest. Um, although, you know, this process of working through this podcast has certainly made me a better language teacher. But language is a complicated thing, just like math. Um, and, you know, as teachers, we're often such generalists. One of my teachables is language. And I've been officially an English teacher before at a high school level. And I've taught language to all grades. But I, I still find it a very complicated topic. Um, similar to math. Um, yeah, but I, I will say that there is some controversy for main idea. I know some phonetic advocates advocate for less comprehension instruction. And I would argue, and I've made this point many times, and um, that comprehension focus should be lower in primary grades. In my mind, your primary goal in the, the earliest years should be fluency and phonetic understanding. So the ability to decode and then as that progresses, ideally, the ability to rapidly identify words. I think you need the phonics first. I think phonics is the most foundational skill of reading. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't spend a lot of time on main idea, say, in a grade one, two, or three classroom. That's not to say you should never teach it. Um, if you're having a library period and you're reading a book to a student, it might be an idea to... Um, um, ask your students to identify the main idea of a story. In fact, I'm a librarian part-time right now. One day a week, I'm a librarian, and I have students come into there, and I have kindergarten classes, and I absolutely do that activity with kindergartners. I don't think there's any any problem with that. Um, but if you're teaching language and your main goal is to teach students how to read, then I think you need to be focusing on interventions that actually do that. And teaching main idea does not teach students how to read. I'm sorry, I just keep Every time you talk about teaching kindergarten and now you're talking about doing uh, library, it's just, I'm just imagining this, 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 you know, I know, I know our viewers, they don't really know how we live, but just imagine as a power lifter, this tight sweater, you know, talking to the students, what do you think this book is about? <laughs> just like kindergarten top or something. It's, it's funny. Okay. Um, I guess I hadn't previously mentioned that I'm teaching library for one day a week. Okay, so yeah, the next one on our list is continuous reading. And this is kind of a controversial one, and I was very surprised by this one. Um, it has an impact size of 1.26. So again, all three of the last two stra three strategies we've looked at are very high yield strategies. Now, continuous reading is the only whole language reading approach that seems to have a high effect size. And um, it is actually higher than any phonetic um, approach that we've looked at. But it's a very hyper-specific thing. So in continuous reading, it's having students who are struggling with reading go um, sit in a, a, a room with uh, in a small group with one instructor and just read for like an hour at a time. Um, and in fact, I believe in the studies they looked at, that was the average time was an hour, although I'm quoting that off the top of my head. Um, and then the instructor's job is when the student doesn't know a word, 
their job is to tell them the word or help them decode the word. Now, this is essentially guided reading, which has a very low um, effect size, and except it's done in small group. Now, I think it's successful for two reasons. One, we're increasing the quality time under instruction because the students are doing it for an extended period of time. Two, we're really lowering the, the, the population of the class to like two or three students. So those students can really get the entire focus of the teacher. And ideally, we'd want them to have re-reading a text that has some words they don't know so the teacher can teach them those words, but enough words that they do know that they can um, read somewhat independently. Um, now, obviously, this is problematic in the sense that you can't do this with students who don't know how to read at all yet. They have to have some level of reading. Um, so one of the, the big criticisms of whole language approaches like this one has been that it doesn't work for students who don't have um, basic reading skills developed yet. Um, and so I would, I would agree that this is not for a student who say in grade one, two or three. In my mind, this is a, something for a student who say in grade six, seven or eight, who is behind in reading, um, but has is reading at some level, maybe they're reading at a grade three level and they're in grade eight then this might be a good skill, uh, good uh, intervention to try, um, especially if they already seem to have their basic phonic, phon phonological knowledge. So um, I have had students, and this is, I think, quite uncommon, but I have had students who can't really read fluently yet, but um, they do have their basic phonetic knowledge. So really, they have the, the, the building blocks they need to be successful in reading, they just don't have the muscle memory or, um, for lack of a better term, to um, actually just read automatically. Um, so I think this is, can be a useful intervention in that specific slot. I would not be comfortable endorsing this as a, like um, the number one go-to technique for teaching reading for students who are struggling. And it's also, when you think about it, it's a very expensive intervention because it requires a teacher to work um, in very small groups for long periods of time. So that requires, if you have 50 students who are struggling to read in a school, which I don't think is uncommon in a large school, you would need far more than one or two special education teachers to implement this effectively. Yeah, I was, I was really just about to comment on that point. Um, an hour of reading seems a lot. I can, you know, if you have students that can sit for an hour and read, that would be great to do. Um, but the amount of, you know, EAs you may need, or this is definitely, this kind of intervention, if it was being touted, would be uh, definitely a good uh, promotion for having lower class sizes. Um, yeah. I would say, actually, you know, I, I, I guess I'm getting a little off topic here, but I would say when it comes to reading instruction, as we've kind of suggested a couple of times earlier in this podcast, um, reading the, the skill of reading is a far more complex thing. I would say a lot more than, than, than that. And I would say reading is definitely probably the skill most impacted by class size. You know, having guided reading as um, you know, as we suggested, has a low impact size. Um, all the 
a lot of the reading instruction methods tend to be performed in smaller groups. They tend to be very time uh, expensive and really utilized to really take advantage of them. It's better if you did have a smaller group of students that you're instructing. <laughs> no, they're they're more effective in a, in a smaller classroom size. So I I would not necessarily say that all the other uh, subjects would benefit so greatly for a reduced classroom size, but um, reading certainly would. And, and an intervention like intervention like this, you know, I would love to be able to sit with my students that are really having trouble reading. And, and read with them for an hour. I think I really have the kind of rapport with a lot of my students that they would they would love to do that. Yeah. And it would be super beneficial. But is it practical? Is it something that actually can be done? I'm having trouble doing my um, my guided reading, my guided reading groups in a virtual environment right now. It's it's posing us a really a real challenge. Um, and we don't even have access yet our board to Bass or, or Fontes and Pinnell, those resources online. So yeah. it, it's really making this whole reading intervention really a challenge in, in the virtual settings. So, side, I side. Uh, I think, well, it's, that's a really important point. And there's a lot there. Um, when we look at the interventions that have the greatest impact on reading, they are all very time intensive. And they're all very labor intensive, meaning it takes a lot of individual teachers involved. Um, and this is part of why we sometimes see so many students leaving school without the ability to read. It ends up really being an economic problem um, more than it is a pedagogical problem. Um, and this this has uh, been addressed actually right now in courts in some states in the United States because there are um, family groups suing the school boards for not providing enough resources um, to their students for to be successful. Now, part of these lawsuits are focused on pedagogy because um, the school boards have been using pedagogies that have been proven far less effective for students who can't read, such as Fontes and Pinnell. Because Fontes and Pinnell actually has been criticized quite a bit, and I think quite deservedly so, for not being evidence-based. In fact, guided reading, to some extent, has been an idea championed by Fontes and Pinnell, and it's not um, shown to be an effective tool in the literature. So let's let's actually move on to our our next one, which is single scale phonics. Now this is a funny one. Um, it actually comes from the 2006, I believe, meta study done by um, the National Reading Panel, led by um, Timothy Shanahan or Dr. Timothy Shanahan, who, by the way, is someone who I would probably say is the leading expert on reading in the world. So when I'm unsure on a topic, I usually try to just divert to his opinion. Um, in part because he ran what is the largest meta-study, to my knowledge, ever done on reading. And uh, the meta-study is like over 800 pages. Now, I don't know if I should be proud or ashamed to admit it. I've actually read that meta-study three times now. Um, but uh, it is an incredibly dense read. And this, like I said, this um, factor comes from that meta-study, single-skill phonics. What they mean by this is that we're teaching students um, individual letters at a time. Um, not any blends of any kind. Um, so this would be sort of a hyper-specific example of synthetic phonics. Now, this makes sense to me. This is our highest performing type of phonics, which is funny because it's not a type of phonics I've seen anyone talk about ever. Um, and I've spent a lot of time reading and researching phonics. Um, 
both for this reading meta study analysis that I've done here and for um, our um, or for my book. Um, a large part of the book I've written is on reading and a large part of that focuses on phonics. So I have not seen anyone talk about this idea before. But I think the, the it would make sense to me in the sense that it's sort of the most basic bare bones example of phonics. Um, and I think the most foundational knowledge is often the, the most important knowledge for students to learn. You know, it's sort of like, uh, to me, this is like the multiplication of reading. It's if the students don't know what sound a letter makes, I don't think they can effectively decode anything. And reading is going to be an extremely challenging task for them to, to learn. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And also that just kind of goes to one of my fundamental premises is that um, addressing the challenge of execution is most easily done through stripping away everything that's unnecessary. Try to like find something that's extremely fundamental, extremely crucial, and strip down the procedure just to addressing that one thing. Um, instead of trying to do a broad, comprehensive strategy, it is far more harder to implement. Especially in, if you're in an environment where you need to intervene with a student that's way behind. Yeah, I mean that makes that makes total sense. Like personally, whenever I have a student who can't read, the very first thing I do is try to assess their phonetic knowledge of basic sounds. Um, and if they don't know those basic sounds, my next step is to um, directly teach those sounds. Which brings us to our, our next step on the list, and that is expository interventions, which is just uh, another way of saying direct instruction. And this has an effect size of 0.95. Um, this, it's funny, we were talking earlier in a previous episode about how direct instruction is very controversial in math. In many ways, I think direct instruction is more controversial in reading. Um, there has been a greater focus and push against getting away from a teacher standing up at the front of the class and being like, this is how you decode this word. This is this example of a word family. This letter makes this sound. This um, word rhymes with this word. Um, and yet, it, despite the resistance to this idea, over and over and over again in the research, we see that it is a high yield strategy. If we look at it for specifically for reading, it has an effect size of 0.95. If we look at it for uh, specifically for math, it has an effect size of 1.22. If we look at it for a generalized effect size overall in education, it has an effect size of 0.7. I think it, it, it's indisputable at this point that direct instruction is important and is a core essential part of good teaching practice. And if I could just add really quick right there, I would say everyone that I've met, and this is completely anecdotal, of course, but everyone that I've met that I was super impressed with how bilingual they were, that they come from, they came from another country and their, their, their grasp of the English language and their own language and perhaps being trilingual or, or uh, polyglot. When they talk about how they learned English, it's in school. It's often direct instruction. They learned all their languages direct instruction. And I'm thinking, wow, there's people coming from other 
countries, learning English and learning to write English at such a higher level than the students that are leaving or matriculating out of high school. And, you know, they didn't use all of the fancy methods that we had. They never did guided reading. It was all direct instruction. And I, it's not, I'm not saying that there's no place for all of the other things, but I'm saying I, the evidence bears out that uh, direct instruction is a very important tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's funny that you say that. Um, but it's just, it's, it's, it's so funny that we have a controversy over this. In my mind, direct instruction is just teaching. And it, it seems to be that within the education community, there is a resistance to teaching. I, I, I feel like I'm being slightly argumentative here, but at the same time, I'm not really sure why when there's so much research on this topic and it seems so researched to so many different fields, how there could be any resistance to this. And it's also just such a fundamental basic idea. Um, the point of a teacher is to explain things to students. Uh, I think I've left Robert speechless. Uh this is sort of the, the end of our high-yield strategies um, for reading. So this is going to be the end of part one of this series. Um, and if you have um, any final thoughts, Robert, I'd love to hear them. Um, but other than that, I will get to our plugs. No, I think we, I think we kind of covered it again. This is still something that I'm really getting more and more experience in teaching language myself over the years um and i'm teaching language this year so i'm i'm sure i'll have a lot more to say when we when we revisit many of these topics in the future yeah i i have to say this is the most quiet you've ever been in an episode robert well that's okay we'll forgive you um if you like the podcast don't forget to like and subscribe um or write us a review on apple itunes that really helps us um get new viewers or listeners i should say um, if you want to follow us on Facebook, you can search us under Pedagogy on Grata. Um, you can go to our website if you want to read articles written by us. There's lots of articles, at, and that's at www.pedagogynongrata.com. And uh, lastly, if you want to buy any of our content, um, and we have uh, quite a large amount of phonics content, actually, something that's been our highest seller recently on our Teachers Pay Teachers store at uh, teacherspayteachers.com and searching our brand Pedagogy on Grata. Um, we hope to see you next time, folks, and that's it for all for now.